Uh, we're uh, focusing in on Jesus as He is in His Passion Week, the week that they are going to crucify Him. And He is uh, at the Solomon's Porch in uh, the temple, what would be around the court of the Gentiles, surrounded by these massive Corinthian columns that stand up uh, tremendously high, 40, 45 feet high and such. Below that porch is the Kidron Valley, and it drops to like 450 feet. So this thing is way up in, uh, uh, up in the air, uh, and then you go down to that depth. And so this has to be quite a view as, uh, as you're there at this temple. And looking across to the Mount of Olives on the east. Uh, but Jesus is not there for a sightseeing tour. That's not what he's about. It was magnificent, but uh, he had no time for that because he's engaged in a conflict. We're right in the middle of a conflict between Jesus and the leaders of Israel. Uh, now, just a, a few days before, you remember that he entered into Jerusalem. That's our context. He enters into Jerusalem, he's riding on the foal of a donkey, and really what's happening is that he is being openly proclaimed as the Messiah. Then each day he goes down into the city from uh, staying in Bethany, goes down there, we know that he cursed the fig tree, and that was a symbol of Israel. And then he cleansed that temple, Uh, he made a shambles out of it, if you remember, and he showed how barren Israel was spiritually. Now, at, uh, at Solomon's porch, he's surrounded by these chief priests and scribes. He's surrounded by these leaders. And you can see on the visuals there the columns, and that is the area that's known as Solomon's porch at this magnificent temple. Now, these are models that are put up. Obviously, that temple was torn down in 70 A.D., and that is the judgment that Jesus was talking about, and it did happen within a generation's time. And so there he is, he's been surrounded, and they're challenging his authority. What authority, what right do you have to come in this place and do what you did? And um, just almost like destroying that whole area where they were making all their money, and they had all the animals and such. And so they're dealing with authority, and that's what we dealt with last week. And so he shows his brilliance by coming back with a counter-question. They ask him a question, and then he has them penned where they don't answer. They can't answer. So Jesus has them. They can't do a thing about it. And that's where we're at as we enter into uh, today. I think his opportunity is there. He has made his point very clear, and he's going to tell a parable. He's going to tell a story. Jesus is the storyteller. Matter of fact, the Bible is the story, isn't it? So we know that it's, it's the story about Israel from the time of its birth to the present time. That's what this parable is really dealing with. It paints, I think, what would be a broad stroke over the history, the, the uh, overview of the history of what God has done with His chosen nation. I think it's an incredible thing. He took a great nation out of nobody and made them what they were. But the problem is is that they spurned His goodness. All of the faithfulness that He had for them, the patience. Isn't this patience amazing? Can you see that in your own lives? How you see sometimes, why is He so patient with me? You know, he kept warning them, warning them, sending prophets, sending people to tell them that God is disappointed with them 
and if there isn't a change, he will judge them severely, which he did. And of course he brought along the Assyrians and then he brought the Babylonians. And here we are now at this time that he comes on this earth and he's amongst his people and they reject him as a nation. They're rejecting him. The the leadership certainly does. Of all the people that should have recognized who he was, it should have been them. So this confrontation is clearly portrayed here, a great picture that's told in a story format. And they know exactly what he's talking about. Usually when you talk about parables, it's, it's dealing with mysteries that either God is going to reveal to them or they're not going to get it. That's usually the case. But in this case, this parable is told and they know exactly what he's saying all the way through it. And by the end of it, uh, they're saying, this is us. That's what he's talking about. This is us. As he brings on the severe judgment that will come to them. So while we're at this point this week, we will see that he exposes their very hatred that they have for him in, in this story. The hatred that they had for his prophets that he had sent all those years there was much hope that he started out with for this to be a fruitful nation, a fruitful people. Right from the very beginning, he blessed them, he equipped them for everything they needed, and here they are showing that uh, they hate him. And this is at the particular point that they desire for his death. And what's interesting, the story comes together because he understands that this is about his death. And he is in charge of this whole thing and it's all coming together. They want to kill him and he is there to die. They're held responsible. God has a purpose and a plan ultimately for people like us. He has to die for us. So this story pulls in everything and what they do, which is so incredible, is that they indict themselves. When this parable is done, they indict themselves. And they realize that they're the ones that Jesus is talking about. And He's going to show the murderous intent that they have about the death of Christ. So, what a reality that was. Let's um, grab our Bibles, if, uh, if you may. And turn to the book of Mark. And we open up uh, actually a new chapter this week, chapter 12. And we're going to start right there in verse 1. And this is a story that anybody can really understand. I, I think it's meant for the young and old alike. And it's something that, that's very clear. And uh, as we look at it, we, we see the very beauty of Christ in it all. Let's stand. Let's stretch for a moment. In honor of God's Word, we'll read the 12 verses. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it. Okay, vineyard, a wall. He dug a vat under the wine press and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. They took him and beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them another slave, and they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and that one they killed. And with so many others, beating some and killing others, 
but he had one more to send, a beloved son. He sent him last of all to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those vine growers said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. They took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and it is marvelous in our eyes and they were seeking to seize Him. And yet they feared the people for they understood that He spoke the parable against them. And so they left Him and went away. Father, thank You for Your Word. It is very simple and yet very profound. An incredible story. Help us to glean a little bit more out of this. Some of us are very familiar with this. Some of us may not have heard of this. But yet as we look at it, may we see the very heart of Jesus Christ in this and apply to our lives in the Son's name. Amen. Well, we start off with the hope. The hope that God gives. You know, that's, that's how great God is. He gives hope. And without Christ, we have no hope. Can you imagine living in this world without any kind of hope? Just going from day to day. That's what people do. They live from day to day. They go to work and they, they don't like their job and then they come back home and they go, to, they go to work the next day and they wait for the weekend. That's the only hope that they have. The weekend, as you know, I had four days and that's the quickest four days I've ever had in my life. And boom, you go right back to work. It's not over yet, but the day is moving by. And it's like, what happened? What did I do? How did it go so quick? But we have hope, don't we? There is something more to this life. There used to be a song that we used to sing by Stephen Curtis Chapman. More to this life. Much more than just what we live here, right? So Jesus really starts with this parable showing the hope that He had for them. And it says, and He began to speak to them in parables. Now Mark is going to show this one parable and then He's going to go on with a question about taxes, which would be next week. Now, other places in, in the Gospels, you'll see other parables. that he should, So he's going to speak in parables. They're not going to get it all. Matter of fact, uh, some of them they're not going to get it all unless he opens them up and reveals it to them. Um, simple kingly stories about, you know, you take these earthly stories and really you see the kingdom that is what it's about was bringing forth. So Jesus begins picturing this hope that he's waiting expectantly for the produce, builds a vineyard and expects fruit. So we see this this familiar image of Israel here in our chapter 12 here today. The people are listening intently. There's a huge crowd. You saw some of those pictures of uh, Solomon's porch. That place was packed all throughout that temple. Jesus has been through uh, walking through there, through the colonnades, teaching, people gathering. Here's this confrontation. And now He's got an attention of the people. They just keep coming and gathering around. The vineyard is a national symbol of Israel. So He uses something they are very familiar with. They know whenever He mentions this, this symbol, 
it, it rings to them. You know, he tells those agrarian farmer seed soil type parables. They get that. You know, he gets right on the level of them. But yet the depth of that is just unbelievable. It's eternal, the kind of meanings that's there. But when you're at the temple, there's a symbol of the grapevine there on the, the, at the temple. A richly carved grapevine. Beautiful. What's that representing? Them. It's them. It's Israel. And it's sculpture, uh, sculptured above the door, which led from the porch... Solomon's porch to the holy place. And so everybody knew about that. You have branches on there, and these branches are made of gold. Okay? Think of the beauty that's happening here. The the bunches of grapes are hanging on there. Ladies are like this. Are jewels. Jewels on this temple. Costly jewels. And what's really cool about it, if somebody really wants to bring an offering, they can bring it and have those jewels put on there and so they would add to them. These are costly jewels. Very expensive. And you have the gold there. It just wasn't any kind of jewels that you bring along. We're talking about the kinds that would cost people a sacrifice. So this vine has a real significance. So I want us to grab that this morning as he talks about that because to us it means like it's oh it's when we go to the grocery store and get some of those grapes you know and we eat them by the handfuls so, you know really good stuff but they really have a sacred meaning to the Jews now thinking of this story on the slopes of Israel are grapevines grape vineyards just everywhere. On the slopes. You have level ground there. And on the level ground is where you grow the, the, the wheat, the grain. So you use the slopes. The slopes are rocky, hilly. And, uh, you know, to the Jews it seems like they just kept growing, you know. And you're in a vineyard, you've got to go in there, you have to start taking those rocks out, throwing them out, get them out of there. Huge ones, small ones, they're just everywhere, and it's kind of like what Jeff City's like. <laughs> All of it's clay and rock, you know. But you, you've seen Israel. It's a very rocky place. So anyway, you have these, these slopes, and people get the vineyard ready, and, and uh, they, they make terraces. They pull out the rocks, build a wall around it. You know, they're, they're taking weeds out of it. They're making this place look really good. And they're going to put up the vineyard. They plant in the choicest of the vine. And they plant it there. Now, when these were built, sometimes the owners would be people who wouldn't live there. they live far off. Maybe in Israel. Or they might even be somebody that could be a foreigner that could own that. But they go away. And they're going to have somebody else do the hard work there and to make that fruit happening. So they'd hire these tenants. And the tenants there would kind of like lease it. And they would be responsible for that and they would make an agreement and it might be as much as a third that they would have to give to the owner or maybe even a half of what they Produce And usually that's what they would give them. They'd give them the produce. So let's say you make an agreement with the owner, you get to keep half, and you give him half. And so, you know, and by the way, it, if you just planted it, uh, probably wouldn't be until about the fifth year that you're really going to see the fruit happen. 
You have to be real patient in doing this. So, uh, you know, a significant time to see, you know, some uh, quite a bit of uh, amount of fruit happening. Uh, but when that harvest would happen, finally, let's say five years, the absentee owner, the guy who doesn't live there, would often send somebody for him to go get the produce. And hopefully the owner, or the uh, the guy who's been doing the, the work there, the tenants, would be very honest. <laughs> right. Uh, they want to collect a payment. So that's what he does. If you would turn to Psalm chapter 44, verse 2, get a little bit of this glimpse, and we'll see some other Old Testament Scriptures that's dealing with this subject. And we'll see how much it really comes into play. He's comparing Israel of how they were planted here. In, in, in Psalm 44, 2, uh, let's look at verse 1. God, O oh God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us, the work that You did in their days, in the days of old. Going all the way back. You, with Your own hand, drove out the nations. Then You planted them. You planted Israel into their land. You afflicted the peoples. Then You spread them abroad. He's telling a little bit about the history, just in one verse there, about former deliverances and... Of course, the troubles that would come along. Go all the way back to Exodus. Exodus chapter 15, during the time of Moses. And this happens to be the song of Moses. And we get a little bit of history in a verse here. Verse 17. And he's saying ahead of time, because it hasn't happened yet, but he's going to bring them into the promised land, right? You will bring them and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. Now, this is long before it happened. And Moses didn't really get to go into the land with them. But we know Joshua did. He's the captain. He brings them in. Plants them into the land. Forty years in the wilderness, but there they are now planted. God made way. He took all the enemies out. So you see a little bit of the history there. So under God's leadership, God takes... Let's go all the way back to Abraham then. Get a little bit of history lesson here. Abraham leaves Ur because God tells him to, to go from there. It was evil. It was pagan. He wants to uh, get his own people separated from them. He's, he's going to become a father of a chosen people. Starts with Abram. And a whole nation comes out of this one man and his wife and they prove to be a blessing to the whole world. And in Romans 4, it talks about us also getting in on this promise. We, as Gentiles, also are blessed by Abraham. So God delivers them. He takes them out of Egypt, brings them into a land flowing with milk and honey. God delivers them, gives them the law, right? This is how the way that you'll operate and you will work. This is for your health. This is for your everyday life. This is for your spiritual life. Everything there he was giving really was for really for good. Uh, of course, ultimately people can't follow the law, but isn't it great that God would give the law? And he gives the oracles to them. Joshua then brings them in, and so they're planted in Canaan. Now, we have the song of the vineyard. And this is where Jesus is pulling this from. Jesus is the Word of God. He is the Word of God, is He not? So He's going to preach them and teach them the Word of God. 
And in this case, he's going to read something to them or say something to them that they would have known. Very clearly known. It comes right out of Isaiah chapter 5, the verse, first seven verses. And so he is saying something they all know about. This is actually a parable that's found in Isaiah. And Jesus is using this parable that they've already heard and He brings life to it. Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning His vineyard. Here we go. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. Okay, God has a vineyard. And it's really the sons. So He dug it all around Removed its stones. Remember, on those hills, you have all these stones. Removed the stones. He planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it. Boy, he's going to great pains in this vineyard here. And also hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes. Now, if you're doing something, you're going about some some kind of business that you're doing, you want to do the very best that you can and give it every chance to succeed. That's what's happening here. And when you do that, then you expect things to come out of it. You don't do it for just nothing, do you? You expect some fruit out of it, but it produced only what? Worthless ones. Now, this is Isaiah. The context of Isaiah is what? 39 chapters of deep, dark judgment on the nations, especially Israel. He's bringing the Assyrians. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? What else could he have done? He did everything. Did everything right. Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? Oh, wow. Isaiah said this. So now, let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. (coughs) God is serious, isn't He? I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed. It's worthless. I will break down its wall and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts, and here we go, is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. This is the news that Isaiah has to give. It's a parable. Jesus draws upon this. It wasn't long after that prophecy was given to Isaiah that judgment fell. Not long after the time of Jesus, judgment fell. This has to be said. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You know, he wept for the, the, the leaders of Israel. And they didn't follow God's Word. So, he's expecting fruit. And 
in Isaiah it says worthless ones or what that really means translated as sour berries. Sour fruit. Absolutely worth it. They're not edible. Nobody would want to eat them. It's, they're no good. God had planted Israel, expected good fruit. He looked for righteousness when He came. When Christ came, He looked for righteousness and what did He see? He didn't see any righteousness. Bloodshed, distress. The Lord is the planter. Israel is the vineyard. And anybody can understand that, can't they? They knew it. It was stated in Isaiah. I mean, it was clear as a bell. Jesus is just referring back to that as He tells this. They know it. It's interesting about the wall. You know, you just knock down the wall. You tear out the... Man, he's already cursed a, fruit, uh, a fig tree, hasn't He? Now He's talking about this vineyard being cursed. He's using illustrations that people would know. The owner took all the great pains to get a very healthy, productive vineyard. Did everything that he could. And he talks about having a wall around it. You have a wall, well, um, you, that keeps the wild boars from coming in. Uh, somewhere it's stated that the, the boars would come into the vineyard and just make havoc with that. So you want to you want a wall up. So he, he gave them a wall. Intruders would come in. He gave him a wall. Then he dug a pit. It'd be solid rock there, right underneath the soil, maybe about an inch. It may look like you have some soil up on top, and you know what you have a lot? All of a sudden, you have nothing but rock. We in Missouri know about that. All you have to do is drive throughout on, on the highway and then look up and see the bluffs on the side. And you go, wow, they couldn't grow anything there. You know, up on top, there's a little bit of dirt. Then you have these trees. It's the weirdest thing growing out of the side of a bluff. You ever wondered, how in the world do they do that? They're right out of rock. Amazing. But anyway, a pit. Well, you take the rock that's there. You don't have to bring any rock in. You start digging into that rock. You can imagine how much time that took. I wonder how much loads of dynamite they used back then. Uh, they used manpower, I guess. But they'd form two vats. One would be an upper one, and then you'd have a shallow one there. And that's, that's what you would have. You'd have the grapes would be trod down by the feet up there on the upper one. And as you would have just tons and tons of these grapes, as you're stomping on them, the juice comes out and it actually flows down into this lower channel in the rock. And that's what they do. This took great pains to build this, didn't it? God, what an amazing thing He did to, to, to get this vineyard. This land that the people came to and such. And then you have a tower. And a tower is built, it's something like 15 to 20 feet high. You know, as high as a, a house or a little bit more maybe. And of course, that's for shelter. It's for storage. Uh, and a great vantage point to see what's coming. Whether it be some kind of wild boars or some kind of wild animals. But you could see from all over, all over the vineyard with this tower and it would be within shot of a slingshot. And so often they would use those. Remember David? David and Goliath? So actually it would become a really beautiful garden. If you've seen some pictures of Israel and you've seen those slopes where they have 
uh, finely tuned these vineyards. It's kind of cool looking, isn't it? Not only there in Israel. You see it in, like, um, you've seen pictures of Italy and uh, or uh, you know, here in, in Missouri. You, you've seen those vineyards where they're cleared out and such. So it appears that great things are going to come. So there's the hope. There's the hope. That's, that's what he did. He did everything that he needed to do. Now we get into the kindness of God towards the people. And uh, we see what he does here. Matter of fact, it says at the harvest time. So he gives them a harvest. He sends a slave to the vine growers. Okay. Harvest time. Let's go back to Leviticus chapter 19. Going back to the law, and we'll see a little bit about the harvest. How they were supposed to do. When you enter the land, okay, and you plant all the kinds of trees for food, then you shall count their fruit as forbidden. Three years it shall be forbidden to you, it shall not be eaten. But in the fourth year, all its fruit shall be holy, an offering of praise to the Lord. In the fifth year, did you catch that? The fourth year, the finally... They give it to the Lord. It's offering to the Lord. In the fifth year, you are to eat of its fruit. That's its yield. May increase for you. I am the Lord your God. So, that's what they were to do. And so there in that, in that fifth year, finally it's going to produce a lot of it. In the fourth year, you give to the Lord. Um, and how kind God is to set up a place and then give fruit. Well, we see the treatment. That God would say, okay, listen, uh, I'm going to send somebody there to get what has to be brought and taken. The people are shocked. They have to become shocked at this. He relates to them that the, the one who was sent is uh, really struck. They, they took him and beat him. Uh, they, they pummeled him. I mean, they got on top of him and boom, boom. You know, I mean, they, they really got him. They beat him unmercifully. And then they sent him back to the owner empty-handed. Didn't give him anything to take back. Been beat up severely. Another one we notice is, and he's another slave, a servant. And they wounded him in the head. That's getting even a little more serious, isn't it? They bashed his head in, is the idea. Treated him shamefully. Sends another. What do they do with him? Kill him. Others are sent. They're killed. This is outrageous. He's telling this to Israel. He's telling their their real history. This is at Passover time. Uh, Wow. This is really convicting. This is our heritage. They, They know this, don't they? I'm sure they don't want to admit it. They don't want to think about it. That's where they came. That was the fathers before them. If you'll think about it, there was Elijah. You know what they did to Elijah? They drove him into the wilderness. Isaiah, you know what happened to him? story goes that he was sawn asunder. Zechariah was stoned to death near the altar. Well, let's bring it up to present time. John the Baptist, the greatest of them all beheaded. Mm. This is what he's saying. I sent my people to you. I was kind to you. And then comes the surprising aspect to them. The people are listening to this story intently. 
They're going, hey, I've heard this. And he's giving some depth here. This is the teacher of all teachers, folks. And he's illuminating this. I'm sorry, I'm the best you got here today. But I'll tell you, I don't have to really do much because it's all right here, isn't it? And the Holy Spirit comes in there and He gives us a little something about how, how good God is. Are you, are you gleaning from that how kind God is and the kind of hope that He gives and you know the fruit of the Spirit? He wants us to have fruit. Why? Because He's trying to take all the jollies out of my life, right? No. It's the opposite. He wants us to be fruitful, doesn't He? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. He wants that to be showing because that gives Him glory and it gives us joy. The joy of that fruit. Oh my. And now the people are saying, oh no. He sent His Son. They're getting into the story. And by the way, we'll see in a moment that they're answering Him. I mean, this is a thing going back and forth here as they as they answer after He's done with it. And sure enough, they killed Him too. <laughs> There's no one left. This, you know, and I think you have to say this is the ultimate display of God's love. He keeps sending people, and then He sends His Son. Spurgeon said about this. Can I read this? This is this is beautiful. If you reject Him, He answers you with tears. If you wound Him, He bleeds out cleansing. If you kill Him, He dies to redeem. If you bury Him, He rises again to resurrection. That is the power of love. Jesus is love made manifest. He is love in front of them. As he's telling this. So after he's killed, nothing remains. Christ is refused. God's love is still coming. He cast all, all those people, Israel leaders, they cast the messengers aside. And it's like putting a finger in the eye of God and just pushing it in. Well, when one slights the very Son of God, that's what they're doing. They're just punching their finger into somebody's eye's socket. Israel's leaders actually wanted the vineyard for themselves. They didn't care about God. They wanted it for themselves. God's servants, they deliver His Word Keep delivering the Word. Keep delivering the Word. And the leaders just get threatened. Because this is all ours. Look what we have. What right do you have to come in here and beg of this fruit that we have? Uh, That's kind of the idea if you put that parable together. And uh, when Jesus comes, what right does He have to come into the temple and do what He did? Well, he owns it, doesn't he? He owns that. They are just the tenants to take care of the Word of God. And they did it poorly. And they took that Word of God, distorted it, made it say something it never was intended to do, made their own rules and their own laws out of it, distorted it, turning it into legalism, putting hard things on the people to follow. 
And so there we have it. They have monetary profits coming in. Why do they need the Son of God coming to them when they have control? They think they have the authority, don't they? So there's the kindness of God toward His people. Kept sending people and and gave them warnings over and over and over and over and over again. We get into verse 9. It says, what will the owner of the vineyard do? Now, it tells the story and it says, okay, looking at them and everybody knows what the answer is going to be. He knows what it is. They know what it is. What would they do? If you were the owner, what would you do? Wow, what will the owner do? They, uh, they get it. You have the people answering. Look at Matthew 21, how they answer. You don't have it here in Mark, but you have it in Matthew. Matthew 21, verse starting at verse 41. How do the people answer? Verse 40, he says, what will, what will he do to those vine growers? What's the owner going to do? Here we go. They said to him, and I have to wonder if it's some of these leaders. Well, he'll bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. <laughs> you got two things happening here. He's going to bring those wretches, look at this double use of wretch, the wretches to a wretched end. I guess that's taking it to the extreme, right? And not only that, to make insult to injury, and he'll rent out the vineyard to other vine growers. Wow, make an end to that, and then he'll give it to people that didn't never never even owned it. The crowd gives the answer, and they they affirm this. Jesus affirms it in Mark, right? And but there we go. So uh, they're saying that answer, and. It's interesting as they're grasping this meaning here. Look in Luke 20, verse 16. And that's the other account. Luke 20, verse 16. And 15. What then will the owner do to the vineyard to them? He will come and destroy these vine growers and will give the vineyard to others Guess what else they say? When they heard it, they said, May it never be! May that not ever happen! No way! And the word is Megenita. And you've heard us say that many times. In Romans 6, you have Megenita. So what shall we do? We take this grace and just let it overabound and we can go ahead and sin and do whatever we want because God has His covered with His grace. So we can do whatever we want, right? Megenita, Paul says. That is the strongest negative. And I'm saying that because it's the strongest negative in the Greek language. I mean, I don't know, in our English we can't gather it as enough. No way! <laughs> it's about as good as it gets. Megenital sounds stronger, doesn't it? The leaders, these people, are here. You know what they're doing? They're taking the side of God. <laughs> they don't want this to happen. They're convicted. There's a conviction here. And I don't know if they're they're catching it, but yet, at the same time, Jesus says in Matthew 23, 
later on, Woe to you scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, he also says, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. Remember what they did to them? Behold, your house is left to you desolate. Now, there have been 700 years and then 500 years fell on that nation. Vengeance will come from God against the false, wicked, religious leaders and everybody who follows them. And we have proof. We can look back at it in past time and look at 70 A.D. You saw some pictures of the temple earlier. Beautiful place. Herod's temple. All of that was knocked down. You say, how do we get those pictures today? There's, there's a model. And it's kind of on scale there in Jerusalem. You can actually see it. You can actually kind of look down upon it. You know, <laughs> there it is, all laid out on the ground. But you get those pictures magnified. It looks like it's there today. All you see there today on that Temple Mount is on that rock is the that golden dome, which belongs to the Muslims. Boy, does that speak volumes? You think the Jews like that? They hate it. But yet that's their city. Isn't that incredible? It's their city. They can't do anything about it. Quite interesting. Divine judgment He brought upon. And then after they burned the city and destroyed the temple, they went about through like a thousand villages, ravished them. This was the Romans. People just massacred. Huge. Hundreds of thousands of people were killed. That's called divine judgment. This is what Jesus is talking about as we go a little bit further. Today, there is no priesthood. There are no sacrifices. There are no ceremonies. There are no Sadducees, no Pharisees, no priests, no chief priests. For good reason. Don't need it. Another thing, God should have made sure that He took care of that. They can't have any of those until they have a temple. They don't have a temple. What do they do about the sacrifices? That's a good question. I think that's a question I would want to ask a Jewish person. How do you get your sins taken away? Knowing that this was that was a symbolic thing of what was going to happen in the future, the Messiah coming. What do you do? You don't have any animals sacrificed anymore. I think they're in quite a position to not be able to answer that. You know who was giving, given the this vineyard? The apostles. Those guys that have been rumbling and stumbling around for the last three and a half years, what we've been talking about in the book of Mark. People like Peter saying wrong things at the wrong time. James and John with their prideful... Yeah. Their pride, uh, the rest of the apostles, we understand that uh, these guys weren't getting it. They were some, but as a whole, they were having problems with it. But God gives them the doctrine to be able to build the church. And I'll hand it on down from there. There have been faithful teachers and preachers for 2,000 years some during some of the darkest times, and God gives those people, those 
and so he did it. He gave them prophets from way back when, and now he has this body called the church, and it's built upon the apostles' doctrine, found in Ephesians chapter uh, two. It speaks about that faithful preachers, teachers of the New Testament. He gave gifts there. Ephesians four talks about them. But the penalty was given to them. The wrath of the Lamb came upon this nation. Before them stood the very Lord of the temple. The Lord of the temple was there, and they reject Him. They will step into the abyss, gaping below. Now we see the triumph of God found in verse 10. Through 12, back to Mark. Mark 12. After saying, giving the vineyard to the others. Have you not read the Scripture? Now that's that's pretty condemning. Of course they have. They all know this. Matter of fact, I think this is uh, one of the... Um, Scriptures that they would be saying during Passover. Matter of fact, I don't think and I know it. It's in Psalm 118. He quotes out of there. This is something they say every day during the Passover. It's just kind of a, a, a ritual that they do. They would, they would say this on their way into Jerusalem and all through the week they'd be saying this Psalm 118. And so, guess what He gives them? The stone, which the builders rejected. This became the chief cornerstone. He's already told them that. They, they know it. The, you leaders, you've rejected him. Um, this stone, he's the chief cornerstone. Well, we heard that one many times. Of course, if you looked in, eyes, uh, in, in Psalm 118, 22, and 23, you'd see that. Then it came about from the Lord, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Um, the stone. The stone. I think of um, Daniel chapter 2 in prophecy. Daniel talks about different leaders, different nations that would arise in the world after Babylon. Daniel's living during the time of Babylon. Then he gives us great messianic prophecy. And this is the dream that Daniel interprets. It's the king's dream, remember? Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time. That's representing all these empires. What do we have? Babylonian Empire, the Medes and the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans. That's really what all this is portrayed. And you look back at historically and you say, that did happen. All these empires did arise. God's prophecy was right. And very soon this started happening. And then all the way up to the Roman Empire, time of Christ. They were all crushed all at the same time, became like chaff from the threshing floors, and the wind carried them away. After the, all of their time is over, Christ comes back. So not a trace of them was found, but the stone that struck the statue, the stone that struck the statue, statues representing this king and such his empire, became a great mountain filled with horrors. The stone struck that statue, became a great mountain, filled the whole earth. Of course, you uh, you see the interpretation then by by Daniel there. Um, Luke 20, 18, says everyone who falls on that stone, stumbles over it, will be broken to pieces. 
but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. So they trip over it, and then the stone scatters them like dust, crushes them, as Daniel's talking about. The sun that was in the parable now takes a different shift, and he says, oh, by the way, the sun is the stone. Now you have the sun, sun to the stone, uh, moving our Lord from, from an analogy here to a prophecy that's been stated. It's a further indictment. The very reason why this stewardship is now being removed from them. And they don't know the Scripture. Have you not read? You don't know it. Did they quote it? Yeah. (laughs) They memorized it. They knew it. They knew this. People didn't carry around their scrolls as they're chanting as they're walking into Jerusalem and the leaders you know, leading that. No, it's right here. They've heard that before. They know that. The rejected stone. What are they talking about? There he is. The stone that, as far as they're concerned, is inadequate. They've checked him out. He's imperfect. He is unacceptable to them. And he's not going to be the head of this. He's not going to be the head of the corner. And by the way, that cornerstone back then, it supported the whole structure. It had to be perfect. The symmetry had to be perfect. And this is a picture of God's glorious kingdom. Now, we're not talking about that physical building. We're talking about Christ being that chief cornerstone. And how many times do you see that passage in the New Testament? It's coming out of the Old Testament. And the Old Testament now, which has been concealed, is being revealed by the New Testament. Jesus used many prophecies. He used a parable, used a prophecy here on on something they would have been very, very familiar with. And these people were wrong. Dead wrong. Verse 12, here it is. Here's the angry response. The leaders, they were seeking to seize Him. And yet they feared the people. There's too many there. They're not going to try to take on these people. No way. They feared the people for they understood. Catch this. They understood that He spoke the parable against them. So they left Him, went away. Man, when truth has been driven in and driven in and driven in, they're really not going to have too much else to say shortly after this. There's some questions that arise and such. After he's done with all the parables, I mean, he, I mean, really, that's, that's it though. Man, I, I would think that this would have been the moment to repent. Because they, they know. For they understood. He spoke the parable against them. Uh, Alistair Begg has a title on this, this sermon here and he called it this is us. You hear what he just said? This is us, guys. They understood it. They leave. They don't repent. They don't start falling down on their knees. Now, it's interesting. Uh, in the book of Acts, whenever Peter is preaching that great sermon on the day of Pentecost, Gives a great message. It just rivets 
says in verse 36, chapter 2, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made Him. I want you to look at this. Our vernacular in our evangelical churches today are deploring. God made Him Lord. I grew up all my life hearing, why don't you make Him Lord of your life? Why don't you make Him Lord of your... Excuse me? I can't make Him Lord. I can't make Him Lord over all creation. He already is Lord. But I should desire that He would be Lord of my life and everything. But He says, Peter's not saying you make Him Lord. What does He say? This Jesus, God, has made Him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified, He's already Lord. See, the reason I say that is because come on down the aisle, walk the aisle, and you accept Him as Savior. Then later on, if you want to, you can rededicate your life and say, now I'm making... This is at camp. (laughs) You can now make Him Lord. Yeah, you're a Christian, He's your Savior, but why don't you make Him your Lord? He's Savior, He's Lord... No. Uh, Like A.W. Tozer said, you don't get a half of Christ. And of course, he just taught deftly against that. And well, he should have. And that was the kind of stuff that was coming in back around the 50s, 40s. Stuff just kind of crept in as really not giving God glory. It's 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 more or less giving... This is, this is when man-centeredness was really getting at its hilt. Um... He's not half Christ, or he is Christ, and then uh, maybe get the other half later. No, he's Lord and Christ. God has made him that way. And Peter then says, Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. That's the point, isn't it? This is the difference between these people who became the first believers outside of the apostles. They were pierced to the heart. Said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? I mean, they are fearful. They just heard the Word of God preached and what they have done and that God is a holy God and He is Lord of all. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. And they're saying, what shall we do? That's the answer. Or that's the question, isn't it? But it's really the answer. This is what they should be saying. And Peter said to them, Repent. And each of you be baptized in the name of Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. A repentance for forgiveness of sins. When you baptized, it was like showing you. A baptism back then really meant something because it's showing you that you had died to the old way. Here's what God did and He brought you to, to new life. And so that was one and the same to them whenever there was a baptism. And so there was, there was going to be a change, alright. That's what baptism does. And uh, what a portrayal here. And you see, uh, you know, then Peter talks about the promises for you and your children, for all who are far off, everybody that's outside of this nation, Jews and Gentiles are alike, as many as the Lord our God will call to Himself. Wow. Peter preaches the right thing, doesn't he? And people become believers there. That would have been the moment for the leaders, all the people around there, 
to repent. God had given provision. Today, God gives provision to every one of us. What can we glean out of this? This one who has grown the vine, look what He has done. And the thing is, if you're a Christian, He continues to do the work. It's continual. He's patient while He does that. He is loving. Matter of fact, He is our life, isn't He? Christ is. And is He's doing the work. Or we also learn that He is a judge who judges righteously. And He will judge sin. And for the ones who, like these guys, what did they do? They just left and went away. There was nothing else to be said. There it was. And they chose to stay where they were at because they liked where they were at. They liked staying in their sin. Because in their own way of justifying who God was, they made up their own righteousness. And that's the thing that God hates the most. Our own righteousness. So we see the sin of mankind, how they uh, would beat and pummel and stone and kill God's people. And yet at the same time, we also see blessings and privileges here also. We see responsibility. And we see accountability before a loving God who is a just God. Of course, the ones who trust in God see that justice and they thank Him that now they have been removed from that kind of punishing justice. And never will a punishing hand be upon us to, to destroy us. Isn't that good to take home with that? But yet, what about those other guys? Well, they're left in their sin. As they leave away, they're leaving in their sin. And what a sad story it is. But he, they know. I mean, there is, there is no doubt what He has just preached. They just don't believe Him. And isn't that the way the Gospel is? Sometimes people will respond like they do in Acts 2. 3,000 added. 4,000. 2,000. The Word of God is being delivered. And then other people walk away. They have no interest whatsoever. Oh, they understand. But that's it. Aren't you thankful for the vineyard that God is working on? He's given us everything that we need to be fruitful and continue to multiply. I thank the Lord for that. I thank for for the the portrayal of this vineyard. Let's, uh, Let's pray.